one month ago. I published a podcast with Wild Coast's Zach Plopper about the environmental initiative known as 30 by 30. It became newsworthy because the WSL was asking all of their followers to sign and support it. And a lot of the surf and fishing communities felt as though the initiative was far too vague to simply sign one's name to. And so they were campaigning for the WSL to provide, or at least seek, a more definitive plan for what 30 by 30 wants to do with ocean protection, ocean access or closure, or preservation. And Zach did a great job of giving an overview of the complexity of environmental protection at large, and also an overview of 30 by 30. But for anyone who is concerned about the vagueness of the initiative, Zach didn't really dispel those concerns. One comment from Jim Bob on our website said, quote, this show was the best argument against 30 by 30 I've heard yet. To summarize, please support 30 by 30. We don't really know what it will entail, just support it, end quote. And I received a dozen or so emails from people stating that they agree with everything that Zach said, they found it to be insightful, but they also wanted to hear from someone representing a community that makes their living off of the ocean, whose livelihood might be affected by potential restrictions put in place by 30 by 30. And I found a few people to represent that voice. And today's guest is perhaps the most qualified among them. Casey Shedd is a self-professed, quote, dedicated and subpar surfer from San Clemente. His father, also a surfer, is Bill Shedd, and Bill's father founded a company called Aftco 63 years ago. Aftco makes high-performance fishing gear, hardware, but also clothing. They are a U.S. manufacturer and leaders in the fishing industry. More on that later. Most of this conversation will be led by Bill because he has 40 years of experience working in or sitting on and even chairing the boards of various conservation groups, nonprofits, and he has worked directly with the state of California to pass legislation. And all of those things are above and beyond his work running AFTCO, which of course certainly positions him uniquely but his personal passion for and his family's legacy and love of the ocean is what motivates his drive to keep it healthy and the environment robust. But all of those things are my own personal inference. Bill can describe his qualifications and motivations far better than I. His is the first voice that you'll hear in this episode. The higher energy voice is that of his son and president of AFTCO, Casey. Casey, on behalf of CJ Hobgood, is the reason that we were able to get Bill here and make this interview happen, so thank you both. And aside from the obvious ocean health thread of this conversation, I really just enjoyed seeing a really well-conceived of and executed business run by a family in Southern California with everyone working hard and enjoying this lifestyle that we all want to enjoy, but we also want to pass down to our children, our friends, and our neighbors to be able to enjoy in the future. So I really enjoyed this conversation. And without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And here is my conversation with Bill and Casey Shedd from AFTCO.
Well, AFCO was started in 1958 by uh, J.C. Axelson. He had a big manufacturing company, he lived down on Lido Island in Newport Beach, was a fisherman. There wasn't a uh, roller guide. Roller guide is used on big game fishing rods to catch big fish, okay. keep your line from wearing out. There wasn't a, one that he thought was right, so he had literally in the basement of his home, he had a large machine shop, and he developed the AFCO roller guide. That became uh, famous worldwide. Uh, my mom and dad bought the business in uh, 1973. I was always raised that I'd never go into a business that dad had worked in because go do it on your own. He had heart problems. I came to work uh, short time, short term, and uh, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> it was uh, over 40 years ago. The company's changed. I mean, obviously the product line offering and all that has changed, but that initial product was you said he invented it in his garage was he manufacturing it in his yeah he garage? had he had a company called the axelson manufacturing company they made aircraft landing gear he had a thousand employees and it was a big business holy cow but in the basement of his home in 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 lido he had what then was many people described to me as the nicest machine shop in orange county oh okay. so, can you imagine what that looked like today like the this the real estate cost <laughs> on a machine shop in a basement in Lido? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, now there's two two big houses on that yeah. one giant lot. Oh, okay. different as we were talking a little bit ago. Being raised in Newport it was a different world back then. Totally, totally. So then we got so then from, uh, you know, making big game products for fishermen catching tuna and wahoo and those kind of fish. In um, in 1989, I started a, a clothing division, starting make make by making a fishing short. And um, that was made specifically for fishermen with a pliers pocket and blood washed out. And uh, it was made just for fishermen. And that caught on and grew from there. Now the biggest part of our business, especially with son Casey and son Cody and daughter Christy running the business, has become much more of a clothing business and making um, product clothing for serious fishermen, functional, functional clothing. And it's not just for fishermen. It's for outdoor enthusiasts. You know, if you just to protect you from the sun. Uh, it's funny. There's a lot of crossover markets now, um, you know, like fishing and surf. 100%. And yeah. It's interesting. That, I don't know that that existed when I was a kid. If you were into motocross, you had motocross stuff and surfing, surf stuff. No, the biggest change that's happened is the, the rise in all these niche uh, hobbies, essentially. They've all developed their lifestyles. Yeah. Is one. Exactly. And then from there, there's a lot of crossover because a lot of people, you know, like particularly this conversation, how many surfers also are fishermen and vice versa? Tons. There's a, there, those, those two worlds kind of live very one in the same. Yeah. Right? The, um, it's also, there's parallels with the company development, like in surfing, Quicksilver was founded on board shorts. Right. You right. know, like yeah. functional yep. or Patagonia climbing. Yep. Same exact thing where we need this technical uh, clothing for this specific thing. And then the rest of the company builds up around that. Yeah, people find, yeah, I wear this stuff on the boat and it uh, it gets uh, wet and it dries fast. Well, hey, if I'm hiking and I sweat, I want to dry fast. If I, you know, if I wear this on the, for sun protection, and if I'm just uh, out and around, I'm going to, same sun rays are going to burn you on land, they burn you on water. So right. why not protect yourself? Well, and, and you've been in a surf store in the last like 20 years. I mean, it looks like a fishing. Totally. Right? Like, so that's why, you know, it's extra important to have this conversation because these that guy and that girl, the same person. We're all enjoying the ocean resource, yeah. right? And surfers are looking for access to the waves and protecting that the waves and the beach at the same time. And fishermen are looking for access to our fisheries and making sure our fisheries are protected. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's been really interesting to watch. And I love it. Like, it's been really cool to see the progression of surf guys kind of dip their toes more and more into the fishing side. Like, I think that's only a good thing. 
and you know, like seeing Salty Cruz rise, like yeah. what an amazing thing that thing's been for youth engagement in fishing, particularly in Southern California. Like telling that story to both the the surfer and the angler, that's awesome. It's such a savvier business model too, or it's a broader market that they're appealing to. Yeah. And at the same time that they've seen experienced that rise, so many surf brands that were niche surf brands just catering to the core of surfing yep. have not succeeded. You know, so it's like by kind of having yeah. multiple demographics that you're appealing to. Well, there's there's 50 million fishermen in the country. So maybe 60 million right now, but it yeah. could be as many as 60 million. Right. Last published 50 million fish. That's a lot of people. That's crazy. So those guys also walk into a lot of surf shops. Right. If they see something they can relate to, then and the, and the smart surf retailers have picked up on the fishing thing, and and there's a lot of product now that features, you know, pelagic game fish. Yeah. Um, you know, fish on them and that functionally can be used fishing as well. Right. Before we get into the reason why we got together today, I wanted to ask you about just running a family business. Um, Cause we run into this in surfing as well, certainly with surfboard shapers. Uh, what, was there ever any concern that they wouldn't get into the business or also how did you kind of entice them to get involved with the business? Because I think lots of times you want to do something other than what your parents want you to do. Just, yeah, you can't. Whether they uh, own the business or not, you know? You can't entice them. Okay. That, that doesn't work. And when the kids were little, I mean, all along there was, uh, actually it was you can't come to work at AFCO if you want to until you've gone out and done something else. And so what that did was it, it did several things. It brought back to the business. Casey, for example, so he went out and uh, learned online, mar online marketing, learned uh, social marketing. So he brought uh, uh, at Macy's and... Uh, so in the, in the clothing world, learn, learn that business. So he brought a expertise and a talent back that the company needed. And when the kid goes out and uh, is forced to do it on his own, it's, they just need to do that. That's just a healthy thing to do. If you just give it to them, uh, oftentimes it's not going to work. And, and the bottom line was if they didn't have an interest in the business, I wouldn't want them to be here. Sure. And uh, at that point, if kids didn't want to be here, we'd sold it and you know, as I got older, then, then what do you have? But to, to have them want to come on and be on board, um, that's, you know, for a dad, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the best, to watch your kids uh, yeah. pick up on and, 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 and actually do this thing and run it and uh, build it better than I ever did, better than my dad ever did. So it's, it's awesome to see. Did your dad have expectations for you to get involved? No. My brother was playing baseball at UCLA, um, got drafted, but, you know, not that high, so went and played baseball in Italy. Um, saw uh, uh, these antiques and these uh, gifts that he brought back for girlfriends and mom and thought, well, wait a sec, people like this. There's a lot of it here. So he ended up uh, learning the antique business, built one of the larger antique operations in the, in the, in the country, uh, really that started from uh, being in Europe, traveling around, playing baseball, and really started from, well, I better figure out to do something because uh, I'm not going to get into a business that uh, my dad was involved in because I don't have that option. Um, what happened was when dad, the day that mom and that mom and dad bought AFCO, he had a, a heart problem driving home to the Hoag from, to, by Hogue hospital. He thought I better stop in there. He did. This was, uh, uh, before there was any place other than the Houston medical center doing uh, quadruple bypasses. And they looked at him and said, you got a problem. We're flying you to Houston. So they flew him down to Houston, Houston medical center. They worked on him and he, he lived 30 years after that. Wow. But I came on short term to help out for a while. And okay. that's how, that's how this happened. Yeah. Uh, just a side note. I had a friend who had 
a similar experience where he was driving home. We actually played in a men's league, base, uh, basketball league together. And we were just practicing one afternoon and he didn't feel good. So he's like, I got to go. So he bailed and he needed to make a left-hand turn to go home or a right-hand turn to go to Hogue. And he just thought, you know, I don't feel great. Yeah, same. I'm going to make the right-hand turn and go to Hogue. He got to Hogue. They put him on the table and they go, if you would have made that left-hand turn, yeah. you would not have survived the night. Yeah. It was like the Widowmaker, what they call the Widowmaker heart attack, where there like, was yeah. a clot traveling, traveling through the artery that they witnessed and saw and were able to you know, uh, protect against or whatever. Yeah. And he, had he not been on the table, he would have died. Yeah. Isn't that so yeah. life? It's like crazy. These little decisions you make that have these giant consequences. Yeah. And, you know, like. And I don't think he realized at the time, but looking back, he goes, I remember sitting at that light and it was either left or right. Yeah. And I just thought, eh, I'll go right yeah. to the hospital. Crazy. I know. Young really guy. Crazy. Young guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. 40s, mid 40s yeah. or something. Lots of those decisions that you don't have any idea the impact that they're going to have on you, and yeah. they're huge. That's scary. Luck of the draw. Luck, one of my favorite sayings is, lucky beats good most of the time. Well, how do you tell yourself that? In the moment, like, how do you tell yourself to turn right? You, you know just, what I mean? You hope, you hope you're lucky and you make the right call. I guess so, yeah. <clears throat> Back to your what your dad's expectations were for you. What was the company doing when you got involved? Like, It was very small. It was in a, um, a small warehouse in Costa Mesa. Um, 2,400 square feet. Uh, we used about half of it, uh, making uh, a few roller guides and roller tops. So with that business, then we expanded to different kinds of rod parts, you know, component parts for fishing rods, ultimately into handles and reel seats and uh, a range of parts. Then we would sell those component parts to Fenwick and Daiwa and uh, Shakespeare and Berkeley and uh, what is now Shimano and uh, major uh, rod makers. As a, as a component supplier. Then as time went on, we started to make a few um, uh, consumer items. And, and now, and especially with the expertise that Casey brings and his team brings with the internet, our focus now on the tackle side is in, in parts business is still important, but increasingly more consumer items that the, the serious saltwater fishermen can use. The there, part, was, there wasn't much of a business. When you came to work at AFCO, it was, it was two very, employees. It, it wasn't was, really It was business. very small. Got it. It was mostly 1,200 1200 square feet, uh, three employees, uh, four employees, and a very very small business. And how big is this building? This is 117,000 square feet. He always jokes about with me, like, you know, if if you and your brother and sister can turn the business, you know, grow the business as many multiples as I did, (laughs) you'll be in a very different spot. Throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, exactly. Step up to the challenge, kid. Um, So, uh, but the parts are still manufactured in America. That's an important Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah, they all, all of the rod parts are, are made here. That's something we pride ourselves on. And, and uh, uh, how easy or difficult has it been to maintain that promise? It's been a challenge. But it's, uh, the name says American Fish and Tackle Manufacturing Company. So it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a goal and uh, something that we maintain with our, with our rod parts. Does so, it make a difference? I mean, yeah, you know, it, it, it does. And, and it does from the, the quality standpoint, and, 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 and from the sample, example of something like one of our handles that you assemble together, there's, you know, uh, you know, half a dozen different components that go together. And how do you, how do you really know and how do you really, how do you really check is the, um, uh, the glue that's being used, is it proper? Is the press fits that you have, are they within tolerance? And if you do it yourself, you can know. Because um, once you put it all together, tolerances could be off. You would never know. You, you can't tell by looking. 
You know, you'll, you don't know till there's a failure. And one of the things that AFCO has just been known for forever is we, we just make good stuff. We make, it's not, it's not the cheapest. Uh, in fact, it's the most expensive in most of your case, but it, we make it the best. And somebody that's going offshore to fish, what he doesn't have, he doesn't have, t- he doesn't have time for something to mess up. So you go to catch a big marlin or a tuna, you might fish, you might fish all year long to hook one marlin in Southern California all season. Well, once you hook that fish, it, it, stuff's got to work right. So it, it matters. Good. Yeah, and I'd say that's probably another difference to it. You know, there's ways to scale that. Like even on the clothing side, we do all fulfillment out of this building. You know, we could send that to Nevada or right, Ohio. Right, right. So there's ways to scale your business that uh, some private equity group or some bigger group would do differently. Totally. But you lose the human element right. and you lose the human touch, and it's just a different level of service. Totally. And, we're say. you know, we're, we're not uh, in the business. We're not building this for – just what can we do best for next year? Right. So we've got, you know, Casey's president of our company. He's 34 years old. Um, he's got, uh, you know, two other kids that are not a whole lot older. And um, they're going to be here for a long time. Yeah. And our, our goal is to have this be a, a family business. And when I say a family business, not just the Shed family. We've got 70 employees, and those are part of our AFCO family. And uh, we take pride in, in being able to... Uh, you know, offer a, a, a good living for people in a work environment where people don't want to leave. They stay because you just, you treat people right and you treat them like family and, and things work. And so, you know, we want that to, I want that to go on for a long time. So the goal here is not how, how fast can we build this up and then get it sold? It's, uh, you know, what, what's this place going to be like in 50 years? Awesome. That just makes you think differently. Yeah, sure. And it, it allows you to, uh, take time into some of the resource kind of activities that we get involved sure. in, in an unusual way, because we're, we're not thinking about just next year's short-term profits. The, um, I'm honored to be here and I appreciate you guys, uh, first of all, showing me around and kind of letting me know the backstory and be willing to have this conversation with me. How did you find the podcast and, uh, where do we begin that conversation? Yeah, the the I've been a listener to some of your podcasts, but actually our rep, a guy named Stack Bell in North Carolina, he shapes boards for fun and likes to surf and um, close buddy of mine. And he actually sent us the uh, the Wild Coast podcast with Zach, which like I think Dad and I both listened to it. We thought he did an excellent job. Thought he really laid out the environmentalist perspective really well. And he, I think he told the backstory of 30 by 30, maybe some of the past issues really well. Um, but that's, that's one perspective, yeah. right? Like, I think that perspective was, was, was definitely covered, but I, I, I you know, he's not, he can't, he's not going to be able to tell the perspective of the fishing community. And it's a very different perspective than, than the perspective that um, some in the environmentalist community would, would portray. And so I think after listening to that, talking through some others that were, kind of involved in this conversation on the surf side of things, we thought, you know, it made sense to reach out and talk about maybe offering the fishing's perspective of conservation. Yeah. And there's, there's a, there's a real story there. And I think in many ways, you know, the original stewards of our oceans were anglers before anyone else was aware about it or involved in this. It was, you, you just have a different level of understanding for a resource when you're on it every day, right. when you're, when you're, when it produces your livelihood, when you're interacting with it in a personal way, and so, you know, we've been doing many of these call it resource management tactics and tools and concerns for, for decades. And what's happened more recently is that narrative is kind of being told from a different story. 
maybe it's 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 being told from not the primary users of that resource who have come in with a lot of money and a lot of influence and said, well, here's the way to do it. And I think the, you know, 13, 15 million saltwater anglers, the 50 million anglers, the, the divers, spearfish, we've kind of stood up and said, well, hold on, let's talk about what a different perspective to managing our resource is. That doesn't just mean shut it all down, right? Because like, it'd be super easy just to shut down 100% of the ocean and say, let's just look at it. But that's not a practical solution. Well, and can, it's, not, it's not even effective. Can you guys explain a little bit of your background as it relates to resource management? Yeah, and I'll kick that one to dad because he's got the, the 40 years of experience there. Let, let me first answer your question about what, what, what I think about the, the, the podcast. And uh, hey, Zach, man, if you're listening, you did, you did an awesome job. You really did. You, uh, uh, and, and the thing that so encouraged me was he laid out so many things that the other side are concerned about that they're working on that they're focused on, and that's what we want. You know, he talked about uh, um, restoring seabeds. Mm-hmm. He talked about uh, you know, the problems with uh, water quality from the Tijuana River. Yep. He talked about uh, um, mangroves. Yep. Um, and, you know, that, that's the kind of things that we in the saltwater fishing community, you know, are working on a daily basis. And so it's like, why are we not figuring out ways to work with these guys, our brothers and our sisters, sisters yeah. in the surf fishing world? I mean, in, in the surfing world with folks in the fishing world. I mean, it was really encouraging, frankly, to hear that, uh, you know, much of what we had to say. We don't agree with all of it because there's, there's a different perspective. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at the, uh, the, an ocean issue from the perspective of, as Case was saying, for somebody who's on the water and using it, you're going to have a different perspective of somebody that's, is just as concerned about it, cares just as much about it, but uh, might have learned about it from a book or from what somebody told them. Right. You know, we're not here on behalf of AFCO. We're a very small piece of this bigger puzzle, right? Like, obviously, AFCO is super important to us. Um, we want that business to grow. It's what we know and, and care about. But our real reason for, for having this conversation was on behalf of the recreational fishing community. Sure. And that's been something that you've dedicated much of your life to. Um, been involved in really intimately, and so maybe just to so I've I've spent some. more than four hundred hours a year for the last forty years on uh, marine resource issues, wow. on marine management issues, and that really comes from that really comes from my father, and Dad told me when I was a kid. I remember it. I heard him. Say, he said it to me many times. He says, "You know, your mom and I have the responsibility to do good things for the ocean," and he, he said, "In your lifetime, you're going to benefit from that." So you've got the responsibility to do good things for the ocean. So you go figure out what, it, what that's going to be and, um, and then just go, go do that. So I now become involved in a fishing tackle business in AFCO and there's lots of resource issues. There's lots of ways that, 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 that I get involved as an individual and we as a company can get involved with um, um, trying to do the right thing for the, not just the fishing community, but, but for the resource. So there's, um, uh, that, that's taken me to a number of different uh, spots from for the ASA is the, uh, uh, the American Sport Fishing Association. It's sort of the PGA of golf. It's set, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the, it's, it's set the, it's, it sets the industry standards. And, um, um, I was chairman, I was on its board of directors for a number of years and chairman of its government affairs committee for 25 years. Um, actually I misspoke because the, 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 the IGFA is actually the PGA of golf. Oh, okay. That's another, that's the international game fish association. I'm on their board of directors. I'm, uh, I'm chairman of their uh, Fisheries and Conservation Committee. Gotcha. Um, I'm chairman of uh, 
the, the Coastal Conservation Association of California. I'm chairman of the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute, which is one of the major marine research centers in the country. So the, the bottom line is there's um, just putting time into resource issues has uh, given me the opportunity to be a lot of different seats to look at a lot of different marine resource issues and um, all the way from access issues to gear type issues to how do you, uh, how do you protect uh, uh, the, the environment from gear types like gill nets, bottom trawls, uh, long lines. I've uh, spent many, many thousands of hours on those kinds of issues. So the gillnet I- issue is a, is a you know, the, the local white sea bass issue here in, in, in Southern California. White sea bass is the uh, prized inshore game fish. You go back to the 1960s, the sport boats caught 60,000 a year. You get up into the late 70s, and that catch of 60,000 went to a couple thousand. I mean, that big of a drop. Primarily because of the use of overuse of uh, inshore gill nets, so we and others in the in the sport fishing community got very involved with um, a proposition that eliminated the use of of, of nearshore gill nets, and that the resources come back. Um, but to help that resource come back faster and further, uh, my dad started a program in um, uh, the late 1970s and mid 1970s, uh, which is a, a white sea bass hatchery program. Mm. So the goal was. Um, let's help Mother Nature bring these fish back even, even faster than just the, just the replenishment from the loss of the gill nets. So fish are raised in, uh, in captivity and then uh, released out into the ocean. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You have white sea bass that are you know, released at this size with a tag in it, and, 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 and they end up uh, off of Catalina Island, off of the Channel Islands. How does that little sea bass raised in a hatchery know how to get to Catalina Island. If he misses by a degree or two, he's in the middle of nowhere with no, 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 no food source and no uh, uh, habitat that he needs at the islands. So yeah. it's an it's a, it's a amazing program. It's a, the Mother two, Nature can, it's pretty exciting. The yeah. two neatest things about that are that's funded from the saltwater enhancement staff, right? So, so it's all paid for, but 98% of it is paid by recreational fishermen. The balance is paid by commercial fishermen from, from licenses. We went to the, here's here's a great story about commercial fishermen that some on the other, I mean, about recreational fishermen, that some on the other side would say, um, you don't really care about the resource. We went to the state of California that already had the second highest fishing license in the country. So we went to our legislature, we put our hand in the air, and we said, we we want you to charge us more. We want you to charge us an additional, what's now a $5 stamp that we put on our license so we have money to run this hatchery so that we can help Mother Nature try to fi- – we can figure out how to help Mother Nature to bring these fish back. I mean, that's not done in this state. In this state or any state, not many groups go to their state and say, please charge me more because I want to help the resource. Right. And the, the basic frustration that we have as fishermen is it isn't just the over billion dollars a year that we contribute literally or every year as fishermen and license fees, uh, fishing license fees, taxes um, – there's a, uh, you know, this fishing tackle that we sell here. Um, 10% of the sale goes uh, back to the Department of Interior that then gets distributed out to all the states to help with their, um, their resource issues. Um, hunting has similar taxes as well. So it's not just the, 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 the taxes that we pay. It's, uh, it's the time, effort, energy, and, and leadership in many, of way, many different ways 
And I just, I just described a couple of them. That hatchery is supported in large part by volunteer hours mm. of anglers. Of So funded by and fun, run that's by. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's guys in this building that, will, that go down, that 27 grow-out facilities? No, there's, 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 there's not 27 grow-out facilities. There's, there's, there's seven now, but seven, there's, okay. there's uh, you know, roughly 5,000 hours a year that are donated every year by guys that see, so what you do is you take fish that are, that are, that are about this big and you raise them up to this big. Well, why do you do that? What difference does that make? Because in our home harbors, there's not a lot of big fish. So there's not a lot, there's a lot of fish that could eat yeah. this big of a hatchery fish, but you get them up to six, eight, you know, nine inches. And now they have a much better chance of surviving. And uh, so this is the only place in the country, only place in the world where this is done. Mm. There are other uh, sport fishing groups that have put together hatcheries in other states. But like in Texas, they got lots of open land. So they raise millions of little teeny fish, just fry state, and then they, then they release them. Here, we don't have the land. Right. So what they do is a fishing club will pick, picture a boat dock, okay? And instead of putting a boat in there, you, you hang a net in it. And then you, you put the sea bass in that net, and the volunteers raise them. Uh, scientists come down and check their health, and there's a whole very uh, um, serious process to make sure the fish are healthy and it's, it's, it's all right. And, uh, and then the – so why does a guy do that? Why does a fisherman take all that time? Because he, he, he wants to do something for the ocean, and there's not a whole lot he can do hands-on direct. So we get we, – you end up with 5,000 hours a year, literally. Mm. So it's an example of – a way to keep the resource and the ecosystem healthy while still being able to recreationally fish. Yeah, it. and harvest yeah. that resource, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because yeah. in the, the day, a lot of this is about going back to that resource to harvest fish to feed your family yeah. and to provide for friends and others around you. And right, but it's a and that happens in all. That's a California example. There's those sure. there's those kind of examples for led by folks like the CCA and others who are doing uh, restoring oyster beds in the Carolinas, playing sea grass down in the Gulf. I mean, there's all kinds of examples specific to different fisheries across the country. But all motivated by, for the same reason, by the same group of people. Yeah. Right. So explain to me from your perspective, the 30 for 30 initiative, and then we'll discuss its concer con your concerns with it, yeah. its shortcomings and potential solutions. Sure. Do you want me to take that case? Yeah. Or? Yeah. You're better okay. Suited. So the, the, 30, 30 by 30 is a worldwide effort to protect 30% of all freshwater, all saltwater, and all land by the, by the year 2030. Sounds awesome. Sounds That's awesome. That's right. It's a great sales pitch. <laughs> well, it, Let, I'll sign. Pitch. Let's yep, do this. 100%. You know, it's, 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 but it's, it's, it's more than just a sales pitch because, frankly, it's needed. Right. And it's, and it, and it's, and it's needed. Uh, and, and, and there's lots of reasons it's needed, but one that people don't talk a lot about is just, frankly, the world population explosion. It took until 1850 to get the first billion people on this earth. Now we have about 8 billion people. So all of us are aware of the natural world around us is being impacted. And so those of us that are out there using it, the people that are fishing, people that are hunting, they're more aware of the impact that we're having because we're, we're, we're out there on it and in it and trying to figure it out and understand it. So there, there is absolute need for mankind to protect uh, Mother Nature, to protect biodiversity. The, the question gets to be, how do you go about doing that in the most rational way? Now, part of this, this is a worldwide program. It's extremely well-funded. There is uh, one individual that has contributed uh, or, 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 or 
don't know if he's written the checks yet, but he's pledged over a billion dollars. There's uh, uh, many environmental comp- uh, uh, entities that are, uh, that are focused on helping to fund this effort. And you really have got two th- sides of thought coming from two different perspectives. If you come from the, the side of thought of the perspective of um, man, man is the total problem and not part of the solution, then you want to just keep mankind. You want to keep them off of the water, out of the woods, and uh, totally leave Mother Nature alone. You take it to its extreme in, 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 in the surf world, and there would be people that would believe this. There's not a lot of them, but it would be much better to just not have any surfers on waves because I want to just see the seagull and the wave and the sunset without the impact of man. That's one perspective. Yeah, and stay off the beach because there's microorganisms there and there's bird life. And Seabirds, and, and, but that's, you know, that's, a, that's a perspective, but it's uh, much of it not practical because people still got to live and, and they still got to be who they are. You know, the, the, the reality is I think that the, the folks that, that take that perspective, what they don't understand is that if I can't get on the water and fish or if you can't get on the water and surf, you're not the same person. It's part of who you are. If you can't, you know, because fishing for, 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 for us, it isn't just a matter of catching a fish. It's all the personal family involvement with teaching your kid to fish. It's the, with your buddies. You know, surfing, you know, on the wave, getting barreled, that's awesome. But if you just did it by yourself and no one was there with you, it's a different experience. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a social thing as so well. I might as, sign up for a little bit of just like, <laughs> well, I can set myself up for <laughs> But to your point, I mean, land, the earth is meant to be used. I mean, humans couldn't have existed without doing these things from the beginning. What are we going to do? Yeah. You know, like, or, yeah. yeah. It's meant to be used. So the, 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 there, there's, there's that side of the, of, of, of the coin that says the best way to protect it is just to keep people off. Right. There's the, and that's, that's so, a protectionist perspective, which is different than our side of it is a conservation sp- perspective. We think that you need to conserve and look after and make sure that the resource is healthy, but healthy for a reason so that people can, can use it now and that it stays healthy enough so that people can use it in the future. And so when you look at it through the, that different prism, you come up with totally different conclusions. You'll have one side that will say to the MPA thing, um, uh, we'll say that marine protected areas is the absolute uh, cure-all. You cannot protect the earth without protected areas where there's no people. And um, you'll have an, uh, and in the ocean, you've got to have no fishing uh, uh, protected areas. Um, the other side would say, well, if there is a reason, if there's a problem caused by fishing, you ought to, you ought to eliminate it. You ought to not, if you can't solve it, you ought to... You, it makes sense. You ought, to, you, ought to, you ought to eliminate it. But only if there is a scientific reason to do so, not just because. So the perspective that we have is that you should be managing the, uh, the, the, the ocean uh, based, on, um, based on, 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 on science and not uh, just symbolism. Um, the other side, the symbol is fine because I'm, I'm good with, I feel a lot better about nobody being out there. Yeah, and we're the... the um the rubber meets the road in a lot of this is specific to the, the called MPAs, marine protected areas, and the definition of them, right? Because there's all kinds of, there's a whole gamut of MPAs, and there's 
types of MPAs that the recreational fishing community, frankly, have endorsed and have promoted because they potentially they eliminate um, destructive gear types, right? They would eliminate, for example, bottom trawlers or gill nets or, um, or uh, things that could be destructive, but still allow for hook and line fishing, for example, and still align for reasonable use of that resource. And that is how, um, uh, for example, the largest MPA that was referenced, uh, the one off Hawaii, um, you know, that was signed by a, uh, initially put in place by- By Bush. By uh, Junior, George H.W. Bush, and, and later made larger by President Obama. Well, those aren't no fishing zones. What has happened in California is a very different looking MPA than what the recreational fishing community would hold up as an MPA that we could get behind. And um, many of our, our MPA zones in California are the most restrictive kinds. They're not only no take, they're no fishing zones. Um, and more than that, what's super frustrating about it for the fishing community is, so 16% of our coastline's MPAs, right? And about eight and a half, 8.7% of that are 100% no fishing. And there's another six-ish, somewhere percent that's they, it's more nebulous. Some of it allows for some kinds of fishing, some not. It's, you know. Sure. But what they, it's in our most productive areas. So the, 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 the good example for surfing is if you go, if you were to shut down trestles, uh, Newport jetties, steamer lane, and Huntington Beach Pier somewhere, and say, well, don't worry about it. We just shut down four spots. Right. No big deal. You know, you're fine. It's go, a tiny percentage. Tiny percentage. Yeah. Go surf That's elsewhere. The, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. But you didn't, you know, you took, you took the most productive part of that resource where, where our community is interacting the most with that resource and you shut it down. And so the, the net effect is a, a, many of the real fishing opportunities for our families in the case of California have been uh, eliminated. And that's part of what, part of the concern we saw around this, the, the social media concern that was very organic, by the way, yeah. that just kind of sprung up was individuals who have intimate firsthand knowledge of what that process had looked like in California have are both themselves speaking up and then have spoken to their brothers and sisters in the rest of the country and said, hold on guys. Like, you know, this whole, just trust us. We'll figure it out. It doesn't look so good. So right? it, it, is that specifically the concern with the 30 by 30 initiative is their lack of a defined plan? hundred percent. And them saying, just trust us, we'll figure out the plan if you sign these agreements? Yes, and because we've been there. We've been through that in California. We, we went through a just trust us process. And you know what? We're not happy about it. I don't know how else to say it, you know? And it's a pretty small world when you really put down the layers. So I think many others in the recreational fish community have saw, seen what happened in California. And it's a big group, man. It's a lot of people. They saw what happened in California, and they said, well, hold on a minute. We, we're all for conservation. We're all for helping our resource. But uh, vagueness doesn't work. And if you want to sit down and have a real conversation about how we can manage this resource, let's do it. And, and it's not broad-scale closures because it's, it's a big ocean that has very different needs, right? How you protect a lobster is very different than how you're going to protect a bluefin tuna. And, and every species has the same kind of example. So just taking a some percent of the ocean shutting it down and setting it aside. That's, that, that's not, that's not it. That's not the solution. Let me go back and put some, some specific uh, information on what Casey just described that really well. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to 2002. That time I was the chairman of a group called United Anglers of Southern California. It came up, uh, the environmental folks came up with the 
Marine Life Protection Act legislation. And I personally and the organization that I was chairman of, we supported it because it was what you see now. Let's, uh, let's all work together. Let's uh, do the right thing for the ocean. And um, let's, um, let's, let's protect it for the future. Um, don't worry, folks, fishermen. This isn't going to keep you off the water. This is, uh, there's lots of things we can do, but trust us. So now let's go to, to the whole process of the, it's basically 10 years later, you get into the uh, MLPA process. And that whole process and system was just so geared, and it was geared from the very beginning, it just, they just didn't say so, to um, specifically close down a significant part of the fishing opportunity. Now this uh, roughly 9% of the uh, uh, no fishing, now, the sad part of it, you could have had even more no fishing areas just have them be catch and release. Yeah. I mean, most of the, uh, there's all kinds of other things that could have been done, but it was, no, we don't want human beings out there on the, on the water just because we don't want them there. Frankly, not the science to support that. Right. And we'll get into the science in, 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 in a bit here. But um, So then they come along with um, uh, AB uh, 3030 this last year um, in the middle of COVID and we don't even know about it until it's already in, in, the, in the assembly uh, committees. And we, we even, not were we not invited to participate, uh, I say we, not just the, uh, the, uh, the, the fishermen in the, in the state, but other, other users. No, users were not invited. Um, let me back up for a minute and just say that you would have a very difficult time finding a marine scientist um, who would say that, MPAs, in order for them to be, for a marine protected area, to be its most beneficial that it can be, it has to be done in, in conjunction with um, other MPAs that are already there, other protections that are already there, and more importantly, with the management schemes and structure that's already in place. You've got to combine it, and, you, and it's got to be symbiotic. With AB 3030, um, there was no um, even recognition that other management was in place. Got it. The best managed saltwater fishery in the entire world is California, from the Pacific Marine, Pacific Marine Fisheries Commission to the, Coastal Com to the uh, Calif California Department of Fish and Wildlife to the um, uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, the, the, the traditional regulation that exists in this state is, is really is, is second to none. Yeah, not because of the closures, just because of the, the, the infrastructure that's in place. And there's many, you know, Florida's got a really good system. Texas has a lot of really good systems in the U.S. Let me go back to the, the example of, uh, of, of, of white sea bass we talked about a minute ago. If this table was the entire uh, state of Cal Southern California waterline out to – Hundred miles, and everything that's sitting at this table, your audio, your viewers can't see it, but this table is covered with all kinds of wires and 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 and, and, and boards and and and, and this pack pack, and there's probably two thirds of this is covered up with stuff. If you would have made the entire table one be protected area, no fishing zone, you can't fish in there at all. The white the white sea bass would never have recovered, right? Because they have tails. And when they get to this open area over here, they'd have got caught. 
because the problem wasn't that you need a protected area. The problem was the gill net. And so where you have a specific, uh, and, and, and we're not saying, not saying at all that the problem is commercial fishing. There's all kinds of commercial fishing that is totally appropriate. And, and, and we're, we're not for having uh, closures where you, where you just, uh, you know, point blank. You're, all you want to do is just close uh, commercial fishing or commercial activities. You've got to look and see what problem the activity is causing before you figure out what you're going to do. You don't just blanketly shut it off. Right. I saw a letter that you guys drafted to the WSL. Yeah. The WSL showed up in the surf space. So they have a um, initiative or a wing of their company called WSL Pure that's focused on environmental, um, you know, impact and reducing that when they're running events or just kind of as a general awareness, awareness campaign yeah. for surfers in general. And so for whatever reason, they decided to take up 30 by 30 and ask their followers to sign this initiative. How did that come across your guys' awareness? And was there an issue with the WSL's messaging of it? Okay, so why, don't you, why don't you take that? I mean, it came up very organically on our radar because I'm on the internet. And you follow like, surfing. Yeah, I just saw like a um, a lot of concerned anglers confused, right? Because they were very aware of what this process had looked like in the past and how we've been cut out of the process. Um, so I think there was, call it just uh, frustration, right? A number of very organic frustration. Um, for some vocal voices too, you know, like, like C.J. Hobgood was uh, – Voicing frustration in, I think, a very constructive way, just saying, "Well, what's going on here?" You know, I'm, I'm trying trying to learn, but this seems kind of confusing to me. And so, after talking to um, a number of folks in the fishing community and in the surfing community about, like, okay, well, what is going on, and how do we turn this message into a positive? We drafted a number of brands, and very large brands in the space. Um, Pure Fishing's, a, uh, I think, the the biggest. Um, of all the fishing companies, Shimano, Hobie, Salty Crew, Dark Seas on the surf side, AFCO, Daiwa, a um, whole number of, of water users, essentially, ocean users, said, well, let's ask for a conversation, right? Let, this doesn't need to be an angry thing. Let's just let's ask WSL for a conversation. Um, that was maybe a week or so ago or two weeks ago. And, and you know, to WSL's credit, that conversation is being had. And um, I think... I think their intentions are this, honestly the same intentions that the fishing community has of we're trying to make the ocean a better place. Uh, I think possibly where it was misguided is the fishing community was left out of that conversation. Got and um, there was a very, uh, and that's why we were concerned. And uh, some organizations that were promoting that initiative were organizations that the fishing community is very familiar with and that led us to be concerned as well. Um, and, we just said, well, you know, this this vague guidance is not going to fly. We would love to work with you on some positive initiatives to benefit our ocean, but let's actually work out some details about what we're what we're talking about here. Yeah, and so I think that I, you know what I'm what I'm really hopeful and thankful in this conversation is is that or in this whole topic is, is that that conversation I think is being had now, and there's no reason that the surfing community fish community shouldn't be aligned. Sure. Um, I think in the past we maybe haven't been for, I think there's other interests that have kind of gotten in the middle of it, frankly, moneyed interests that have kind of come in and tried to set some of the narratives, but it shouldn't be that way, man. Like there's no reason that a 
the average surfer and the average angler shouldn't have the same goals, right? In the most most cases, and be able to kind of put together a plan for how we can conserve our resources. Uh, in your conversations with the WSL, did the goals align, and did they understand the backlash that they had received and why they received it? I, I, I want to say that that, that um, um, I was just really encouraged by um, what we heard from uh, from the WSL, and it was um, it was that we're trying to understand. We know there was we know there's a huge amount of backlash, and we're trying to figure it out, and um, we've we're, we we're having a better understanding. There's um, this is a more complicated thing than what is presented generally. It was presented to them. I mean, in, in their defense, there's, there's folks that have gotten really polished at presenting the, let's go save the world, come help us do it, 30 by 30 is the answer. And um, I think, to their credit, um, we had a very long conversation, and they were anxious to hear the other side. And I think they were... They were um, uh, not only interested and anxious to hear it, I, they, they seem to be receptive. They, they, they feel, my sense is they really want to know. Yeah, I thought it was 100% sincere, honestly. We're, we're, we're encouraged. And the, the, goal, the goal of the letter that, that, that was put together is, the bottom line is if you look at the, take the extremes of either, either side out that's been online about this, uh, uh, you know, this the, the, the 30 by 30 um, effort with the petition, most of the... Most of the comments had to do with, come on, guys, come on, people in the fishing world, come on, leadership in the, in the surf world, get together, we're all brothers and sisters, let's figure it out and let's, uh, let's do the best for the ocean. Why, why are we fighting? And, and, and that's what we're in the process of doing is what we need to do to work together. CJ said a really good thing to me when he said, <clears throat> if surfers and anglers can't figure it out, right. how the heck are we going to figure this out globally? Yeah. You know, like if these two communities can't figure out some positive guidance. Um, you talked about their pitch is so polished that it's easy to kind of yeah. fall for it. It almost creates an, um, a conception or perception that there is a, a nefarious actor who's putting on this polished pitch because they're actually selling something else. What are your thoughts on that? Because it is odd to not have a plan in place. For somebody to say, hey, we're only nine years away and we need to do all of this work, we have no plan, but please sign this contract. And they're really slick about it. That that sounds suspicious. It's, it, because it is suspicious. <laughs> okay. That's really pretty. <laughs> Who do we blame? It, it's that simple. Who's, who's well, behind it? There's a plan in place. And who's behind the plan? And who's funding it? You yeah. said it's really well funded. Well, there's... Uh, a, uh, a gentleman from from Sweden that's put up a billion dollars. Right. There's. Uh, um, What's his I, business? I don't know what his business was. Uh, was what was enough to make Generated more than a billion dollars, more than a billion dollars to give away. So I, it was very very significant. The the uh, environmental uh, the environmental community at large um, until 20 years ago was not really involved in ocean issues. Uh, there was. Plenty of issues on land to go focus on, to build membership on, to build a finance base around. And they really stayed out of the, uh, the, the ocean issues until, you know, fairly, fairly recently. I'd say the last 20 years, maybe it's the last 15. Um, in in that, that time period, um, they've very much garnered onto 
the 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 mantra of we we got to protect this world and thirty by thirty is 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 the answer and marine protected areas need to be a part of that in the ocean. Let me just say that we're not against marine against thirty by thirty, and and go back to AB thirty thirty. I don't know anybody in the in the sport fishing world that opposed AB 30 by itself. What we all said was we're opposed to AB 3030 as written. Yeah. And so then we, we got into here's some things that should be done to make this more appropriate, to make it more understandable, make it more identifiable. I don't know that you can go back to a an individual that's behind this. You know, the, the bottom line is that that I think there's many people in this world, including myself at some level, they're a bit panicked about this 8 billion people on earth and, and what's happening to the, to, to mother earth. And so people are just grabbing at something that is tangible, that they can sell, that uh, they can do. And um, it, it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's bad people. I don't think it's uh, I don't think there's a, uh, uh, e- e- even a, even a bad motive. I think there's just a, a, uh, uh, well, go ahead. You want to go ahead. Yeah. I would say, I don't, for my opinion, I don't think there's a underlying business perspective. I think there's an underlying preservation bent where the, the, and you can find the groups versus the, conservation versus bent. conservation where, um, uh, and they're very sly about it, but, um, there's a number of very, um, large, well-funded groups who would prefer, to close access to the resources because that's what they believe is the best way to, to, to manage that resource. It's not, not be able to access. The, pr- the problem is they can't just come out and say that. Yeah. Right. Because of the public pushback. Because, of course. Because, because, well, because you guys, uh, who, whomever organizations that you've named that you're involved with or environmentalists, cons- conservationists in general have a certain amount of ground right now that they are protecting and that they've built for years and years and years. And so they're ultimately the move is to get you to sign away that ground that you've been protecting so that then and they, then conver- as at least from what we've seen, we've been in the middle, not we, I'm a kid, but he's been in the middle of it. And, um, the conversations that happen behind the scenes could not happen in public. Right. Right. Of course. And so what, what, um, um, so the motives are to get the conversation behind the scenes and, what we're kind of saying is, let's talk about it. What are we doing here? Yeah. We're users of the resource. Agreed. Include us. Let's talk about it. Let's hash this out. And we're not going to go along with just sign off onto something for you to hash some stuff out with some legislator somewhere. In the background. In the background. In the background. But so you know what, though? That's still less offensive than, because there's a version of this where it could be sign away everything. And then they go do a deal with Chevron and then they're drilling in the resource that nobody's allowed to fish in. Yeah. You know, and that happens around the world with other governments as well. And that's really ultimately what I thought was not being said through a lot of the conversation. But is that not a concern? I don't think that's happening here. I don't think that, no, I have no, uh, and I've spent uh, 20 years with a a group called CARE, um, um, California Artificial Reef uh, Enhancement effort, which is to t- take the um, the the uh, oil, offshore oil wells and how they're de- decommissioned, and I'm glad you mentioned Chevron because Chevron, frankly, has been a wonderful partner in uh, in, in in trying to do the right thing for the resource, and uh, we've 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 worked with them closely to try to figure out how to do the right thing for the resource. 
I can't say that about all the, the oil companies, but Chevron particularly has been uh, really upfront and above board. And, uh, um, and, 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 and there is, uh, I, I would, there, I'd just say there is no way that the protected areas issue, the broader 30 by 30 issue has to do with the nefarious. Let's figure out how to, um, uh, you know, create some opportunity for some oil company or mining company that doesn't exist. Or, uh, or, or international commercial fishing fleet or whatever the other interest. No, okay. that, that, that's yeah. not it. No, okay. I agree. And I, um, the, mo- the, mo- the, mo- the motives are fine. It's just, uh, it's just the perspective is, uh, is, is off because it lacks the, the, the understanding of the, um, of the user of the, of the, uh, certainly of the fishing user group, who we are and, um, what we do do and what we don't do relative to the I would say ocean. something about commercial fishing, though. I think what what full closure MPAs are really good at doing is stopping legal fishing. Hmm. And I think a lot of, um, I know some commercial fishermen's concerned around it are, and again, we don't speak for them. I, we're not in that world. But, um, you know, a, a lot of our, our global oceans problems are from, frankly, foreign fleets and unregulated foreign fleets. Right. And so if I'm a commercial fisherman, I'm probably pretty concerned about you're going to shut down all this ocean and what authority are you going to have to go keep out for, you know, if I'm in, if I keep my, 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 um, my boat somewhere here domestically, like you've got plenty of authority over me, but some international fleet, how are you going to go, how are you going to go regulate them? You know, in all reality. And like part of the, the, you know, when you really look at, at managing the resource, a lot of it comes down to, do you have the tools in place to, regulate the rules you're putting in place, right? And to enforce the rules you're putting in place. And so, yeah, I do think that if you were just to shut down parts of the ocean, you're not going to stop that. In most cases, that big foreign fleet from some other country. Right. Over what authority are you going to go out into some international waters, right? And shut them down. Right. And so I think, I think that's a very, I think that's a a real concern. Um, I don't think that there's somehow, in my opinion, some group behind that's pushing all this or, but I think I think a commercial fisherman might raise that issue, and I think that's a valid issue to raise. But what what is behind the scenes? Absolutely, for sure, unequivocally, there are folks that um, have the money, have the bent, have the interest to keep people from using the resource. Right, and that is at the heart, and that is really that is the driver. And whatever you do, however you do it, whatever you say to make that happen. It's all fair game because the ends justify the means. Right. And, and that's the challenge that we have in all this because how do you, how do you deal with that? They, they're not going to come out and say it. But, um, and, and that's why with AB 3030, we had an impossible time. We didn't succeed at getting them to be able to define what it is that you really want right. to do. And you know what, what killed AB 3030 was our side of it just made it clear that there was um, – so much that was missing in there that was not being described that was of big concern. So they, it, 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 it didn't pass out of, um, and your a, side, out of committee. Your side for recreational fishing was the CCA of California, right? CCA is a, or who? Yeah. The, the, the CCA of California played a, a major role in, uh, in, 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 in that. It's 120,000 saltwater fishermen across the country and they have, uh, chapters in individual states, but it partnered. It was and it was our our, our, our lobbyist that helped to uh, help help us get the, the message out and to, and to organize it. But it was the American Sport Fishing Association, the ASA was it was a partner. 
the NMMA, the National Marine Manufacturers Association was a was an important partner. The IGFA, the International Game Fish Association, was an important partner. Um, there was basically er- everybody in the sport fishing world. So you can't just pin it on one organization. Yeah. We all worked together and and worked with the hunting groups of s- similar concerns. And there was um, and there was other groups that were were concerned. But the um, the, the the most uh, uh, most vocal, the most uh, at the center of all that was uh, was the saltwater fishing community. And it isn't you, you, if you're going to talk about AB thirty thirty. If you're going to talk about thirty thirty, you really have to talk about two things. You talk about thirty by thirty, and then separately talk about the protected areas issues because our our real angst and concern has to do with the the protection issues um, as far as Who's going to get closed out? And not so much who's going to get closed out, but why is somebody going to get closed out? And is there real science and, 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 and reason to do so? Right. And it's what you've said repeatedly is that uh, both sides want healthy and vibrant resource and ecosystem. Yeah. It's just the preservationists have a different, and the conservationists have two different ways of identifying how to make yes, that resource that's, healthy. That's it in a nutshell, that's right there. Percent. That's yeah. it. That's the whole. That's the that's the um, whole conflict. If if there was a way to kind of sort through all of that and come to an agreement, is there a way to put those things and implement them and achieve the goal of having thirty percent protected? Absolutely. By twenty thirty. Absolutely. The, the reality. Okay. The reality in California, uh, I could very easily make the case that. That thirty percent of the more than thirty percent of the ocean is way more than reasonably protected today. Okay. Not just from the sixteen percent of NPAs, but from and and Eric talked about it on on the show. Zach, yeah, Zach, yeah. Oh, excuse Wild me, Zach Coast, talked yeah. on the show about, about uh, you know uh, uh, marine sanctuaries, yeah. marine monuments. Uh, what he didn't talk a lot about was the, um, the 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 size limits, the season limits, the uh, many other protections that are already in place on anglers. Now, yeah, you could more than thirty percent is already protected. Okay. And so, you know, if it's a and if it's a if specific initiatives are pushing for global guidance around this, then you know that should be specified, right? On a if if this is if thirty by thirty is going to be a global deal, and if someone in the U.S. is pushing for a version of thirty by thirty, they at least need to recognize that there are certain regulations already in place domestically. Right. Right. And if your real intentions are globally then separate those out, it has to be, it has to be, I mean, it's there's a, no global solution to anything. No. Exactly. What, what in this world can you apply globally? I mean, our cultures are so different. It's so many different backgrounds. And that's why I just asked you if we could get it done by 3030 by 2030. And my initial thought is bureaucratically, nothing can get done by 30, 2030. You know, like, how do we even all agree on which process to implement and then approve it? Like, it just seems impossible. Things just move so slow. You know, slowly. it's not impossible. It'll, it'll get done. Okay. And, and we're going to. you've done it. We're, we're going to end up with so. a. We're going to end up with a thirty by thirty program in this country, and you know, our goal here is just to try to uh, ensure that it, that that's done in a way that it actually can can happen without all this bloodletting, and. Gosh, you think it's a challenge in California? Wait till you get to the folks in Kentucky and in those states. There's the 50 million fishermen and yeah. hunters, and uh, you know makes that whole process just so much more messy if you don't have a honest and rational approach to letting and 
letting people know why, it, what it is that you're doing and, 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 and how you're going to go about doing it and how it's going to impact people yeah, and, and I being would, honest about it. I would yeah. say it won't happen without the users of that resource involved in the process. Right. Right. And so, um, because there's, there's going to be so much of this dialogue and frustration and, um, but it, you know, you, you include the user of that resource in that process, which they, is what they say the goal is. So include yeah. us in that, include us in that process. And we've already found a lot of really good solutions to this in the past. You know, in some cases it might just be reframing a few things. So for listeners who um, follow the WSL and trust and believe in their good intentions, uh, what is your recommendation to them as the WSL tells them to go sign this initiative? What yeah. is your recommendation to those listeners? And we, we had a very good conversation with them just uh, not, not too long ago. And the, we didn't have to make a recommendation because they were really already on it. And our recommendation was what they were already on. And, and, and that was that uh, we need to step back, take a deep dive, and to really look and listen into uh, this 30 by 30 issue. And we appreciate you guys taking the time here to explain your perspective. Um, this is helpful or we need to talk to other people as well. We need to get a better handle on this. And um, we need to come back in uh, at some point in the uh, relatively near future. And um, we want to continue to lead on, on and talk about 30 by, they should, we encourage them to continue to talk about 30 by 30. They said, yeah, we need to, we want to, uh, we will. Um, uh, we encourage them to um, take a look at, um, um, we're going to send them some information about some perspective from the sport fishing community and, and, and what, uh, what kinds of things could be in place that would uh, uh, make it all more, make it, put us in a spot where we can work together with the WSL. And that's the, that's the goal that we've got, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and awesome. there's a, you know, whether it's WSL, there's many others that are talking about versions of 30 yeah. by 30. And talking about it is very different than asking for signatures for something, right? And, um, um, you know, our guidance, we, we told us WSL, we told us the public, our guidance was that if you consider yourself um, a user of the outdoor resource, that you don't sign that petition in its current form. Good. Right? Um, so that, you know, that's no secret. And to Dad's point, we're very hopeful that this conversation leads to something, I don't know what it is, but something that the main users of this resource can get behind and champion. Um, and so, but our guidance has, you know, our opinion hasn't changed that the current version of that petition is not something that I would myself sign. Uh, but at the same time, you certainly needed to give credit to the fact that they're willing to engage the community and have a conversation about it. Right? And, and the main thing about, I think the conversation was, is we just talked, we just kind of both sides kind of look at each other and go, wow, we think a lot more like we have a lot more in common than what we might've guessed. And we do. And so how do we, that the goal here I think is, is to take advantage of those common common denominators and they and, have an interest in doing so. And much more important, frankly, than the this specific issue is this is a conversation that's going to be going on in our country for a number of years. And there will be other versions of this conversation that come up. And, you know, my, my recommendation would be, um, I'm not going to tell you to support or not, like do what you're going to do. But if you're going to be a pro 30 by 30 person, look for versions that include the user of that resource. Right. And that's the only guidance we're ever going to offer. We're not going to like, but if you are, if you want to promote it, that's your personal decision. Great. Go ahead and do that. But I would be very leery of something that doesn't include user groups. 
because it's someone else offering guidance for something that they're not personally using. Um, and those user groups are, there's, there's, um, there's uh, uh, something called huntfish3030.com that has um, 42 conservation groups from the fishing and hunting world that have, you know, their version of what a 30 by 30 would look like. Um, and, you know, that's a good list of kind of organizations to look for that would offer that kind of guidance. But yeah, I think that's the, the, the main takeaway would be make your own decision. If you want to, you know, like if you're upset about 30 by 30, generally there's other avenues to voice that concern, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're wanting to uh, endorse a version of 30 by 30, then I would say look for organizations that actually use that resource behind it. I like it. And I think the other good thing that's come from all of this is um, it was so, um, I don't know, gray and confusing, which could put a lot of people off, but it actually made a lot more people activated and it required myself included to actually figure out what people are talking about. And so that's valuable. It's super valuable. Yeah. And, and so um, I think the good can come from the confusion. We agree. So I think it's a good thing. We agree. I thank you guys. Uh, You guys have actually illuminated a lot for me that I didn't even understand coming into this. And it, um, one thing that I feel good about too, is that I thought there were enemies in this conversation and that doesn't seem to be what it is. It's just people want the exact same thing. And like with all things, we have different ways of going about getting it. So let's kind of get on the same page. That's that's well said. And I think that's, that is a somewhat, restorative. It restores my faith in humanity a little bit. I thought there was a big, bad, uh, nefarious bad guy out there trying to pull the smoke over our eyes and pull a fast one. No. Okay, good. (laughs) Not that we know of. Right. Exactly. They haven't showed themselves Yeah, the big bag, the the magician behind the the curtain might exist out there in some other form, but yeah, yeah. I don't think in this. He ain't there. Good. Well, thank you. And, and if, if I could say something here in closing, um, after more than 40 years of working on resource issues and seeing in, di- in different ways, seeing opposite sides just kind of shout at each other, I, I really appreciate what you've done with both this program and the previous one, where you've given each side an opportunity to express themselves. Thank you. And it's, that's, that is, that's what's been missing in the past. Yeah. That's what's needed in the future to make this work. And I can just tell you, as the kind of the old guy in the room with this, it's uh, really refreshing to me you know, in the conversations that we've had with folks in the surf world, that uh, we're so much more alike in our needs and our interests and our wants when it comes to the ocean and what you see in the shouting match. And uh, that's just, that's really encouraging to me. And thank you for helping to make that happen. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm glad to. I woke up on a 747 Flying through some stock footage of heaven This is the light right here before clouds bitter sweeten with suggestion This is the light bald and bold as baby crawling toward adulteration Before our eyes could disguise true meaning And 
this must be the light you saw just as you were Huge thanks to Bill and Casey Shedd from AFCO. Um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time not only to um, engage me, educate our listeners and myself in this conversation, but also just to open up your business to me and, and let me just kind of soak in the uh, pretty incredible business that you guys have built and role that you guys play in the world. So thank you for that. And in closing, I had a couple of email exchanges with Casey Shedd from AFCO uh, after our conversation. And one of the things that he shared with me I thought was worth reading in closing. He said, in the US, our oceans have an estimated 3 million surfers and 13 million recreational saltwater anglers. While the global participation is significantly larger on both fronts, historically, much of the policy guidance for our global ocean health has come from US-based organizations. The surfing community has a strong history of advocating for ocean conservation to enact positive change. However, those recommendations have at times unnecessarily impacted fishing access. There's a history of a disconnect between the fishing and the surfing communities. It's important for surfers to ask organizations to fully include the voices of those that make a living from fishing. That starts at the top with inclusion at the board and senior management level of surfing organization. It also means conversations like the ones that are currently being had. Additionally, we encourage those that care about fishing issues to join a local fishing conservation group. There are many great groups at the international and local levels. In the U.S., AFCO recommends a local chapter of the CCA. That website is joincca.org or simply staying up to date on fishing access information at keepamericafishing.com. So thanks for that, Casey. I agree. I think communication is key. And I think that thriving for one of these communities is would absolutely be reciprocal and the other community would thrive as well. So thanks for the discussion. Thanks for the information. And I'm sure this will be an ongoing conversation. You could find links to everything that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com, of course. There is a comment section down at the bottom, so you can leave a comment for Casey or for his father. Obviously, I recommend checking out AFTCO for all of your fishing needs, which I'm sure that you already do if you're into fishing. And thanks again to Zach Plopper from Wild Coast for starting this conversation. And I think that's it for this week. Uh, I published an episode of Spit with Scott Bass earlier in the week covering day one of the Newcastle event. And then tomorrow I will be reconvening with Chaz Smith over on the grit so you can catch up with us there. And then, of course, I'll be back here on Surf Splendor next week. In the meantime, I hope that you are enjoying the Newcastle event. And, of course, as always, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, recommending that you get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred up.